Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and data science leaders to learn the skills to improve and further your career. We learn these directly from the battle scars and the minds of top industry leaders out there in the field today. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host, and I hope that you're having a wonderful week. Today, we're speaking with Prakash Baskar. Prakash used to be the executive director for data analytics at JP Morgan Chase. Then he spent a few years being the chief data officer at Santander Bank, specifically in the consumer area in the US. And a couple of years ago, he left that role to start his own company where he helps new data leaders to rapidly transition and accelerate their success in their career and of their initiatives in their work, especially for new chief data officers or chief data officers in a new role. He helps to get people and their departments much more productive, much more quickly. Obviously, we share a lot of the same passions and he has a fantastic career. So I found that it made for a really interesting discussion. I hope that you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe. Today, I'm speaking with Prakash. How are you doing, Prakash? Very good. How are you, Felipe? Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much for making the time. It is excellent to have you on the show. At the beginning of the interview, I always like to ask people, how did you get started in the data space? How was that journey for you? I started on the data space. Actually, an interesting diversion. My undergrad is actually mechanical engineering. And for about four years right after graduation, back in India, I was in in the business of making trucks, basically managing the shop floor and uh, handling the assembly line and some of their uh, prototyping activities as well. As we started looking more in terms of how could we improve the output in the shop and where things were going wrong most often. And as a natural progression, it took me more towards digging into the data to seeing where do we get mainly our maintenance breakdowns, which sub-assemblies are kind of holding us in the process, like real on-the-ground shop floor issues that's facing uh, impacting productivity. So started analyzing data and really got interested in with different ways of looking at things. And uh, this is the early days of the ERP and things. So then when I started with my master's, I was lucky to get my graduate assistant activity in the president's office doing data analytics. If, I don't know how much you know about the universities in the U.S. There's, typically, it's more like a hub and spoke model. So there are feeder schools, which are the two-year community colleges. And then they send their students after two years to the four-year colleges. We had to track student performance. Plus, anybody who's coming in as a new student, international transfers, first time in any university, FITIAX uh, used to be the job. So our responsibility was to identify why, how students are performing in the first place. And then if they are not performing to the levels, we got to start looking at the why, the reason. So some amount of uh, pattern studies and we started doing some predictive analytics at that point, but also took it to the level of what are the problems that are actually there? Why somebody drop out of universities? We had very low graduation rates. So the intent was how can we improve the graduation rate so the students kind of stay in college? Hands-on, real problems, real life. So after that, kind of the career progression moved in to more on the supply chain side and after a few years into consulting I got into banking and since then it's all been data analytics growing the function governance activities before it was even called as the CDO office after like 20 years in that field decided to branch out on my own and how did you find the transition from doing the early work on analysis and in education going to a consultant how was that transition like for you 
I went from consulting to corporate roles and then back to consulting. Actually, consulting was a smaller phase earlier on than about in between 12 to 13 years of corporate leadership roles and now back into consulting. So I still remember when I took up my first corporate role, my manager at the time told me, Prakash, when you get used to sleeping in your own bed every night, you're never going to go back to consulting. I told him I'll be back someday. So I, here, here I am over the last uh, two years. I think I'm very thankful and fortunate enough to have had the experiences, right? Because had I stuck to consulting completely, I wouldn't have been able to appreciate all of the challenges and the opportunities that kind of comes with leading initiatives when you're part of the corporation, right? As a consultant, very rarely you get exposed to most of those things because you're only hired for ex- expertise, either a tool expertise or a process expertise or some kind of solutioning activity. But when you're on a roll, your problems are not defined. They don't come with tags. The labels aren't there. Sometimes it encompasses three or more areas. It could be a people problem. It could be an organizational issue, internal politics, and or it could be changing technology landscape or regulations. Having that kind of a corporate exposure really sets you thinking in a different path that it's not enough. Even if you're solutioning one area in consulting, it's not just enough looking at it. You've got to look at it full spectrum from the standpoint of your sponsor. So that way I'm thankful for both sides. That's a really interesting topic, actually, because there's, I think it's underappreciated that difference between consulting and being in industry at a company leading the work and trying to make it happen. How was that transition for you? What were the things that you had to learn when you first started going into industry after being a consultant? Again, the recollecting from one of my earlier days. So I ended up in a role where no direction, no initial expectations was given. This, this was like person talked over the phone, like we had a meeting of about eight minutes and said, okay, can you be here Monday? So I go into the role as a consultant and the first week passes, second week passes, not much of activity. And I get angsty because it's, hey, what do I do? I've not been told what to do and stuff. So I go back to my manager, who was also my mentor at that time. I asked him, hey, I haven't received any directions. What do I do from this point? So he gave me a very good pointer at this. I still remember as of today, right? It is because it's sometimes the person who's getting you on board may not know what to exactly tell you. He's expecting you to find poke around. And maybe there are situations where he cannot enter into the problem directly. That was spot on because they had just bought that company. It was kind of an M&A acquisition scenario. The CTO was trying to find out what's going on on the ground, right? What should be my plan of action from looking at the people side, from the technology side, this list of projects that we have, how do we actually integrate it into our mainstream company? That totally shifted my thing because going in from a, as a BI data consultant, you are more looking at, okay, what can I solution? Where can I, what can I release? right solve the problems not every time the problem is black and white that really changed my life and that was the sole reason why i decided to go into the corporate role as well because it's all of a sudden exposed me into all of these dynamics you got to look at the existing people you got to look at which consultants they had on the ground from other firms as well what projects are going in which ones need to be cut off from a bleeding scenario so that we can recoup the dollars and what are we going to do from an infrastructure standpoint so they can the company acquiring company can actually plan and build their roadmap over the next six months, one year activity for integration. So that totally changed. And then uh, after about a year or closer to a year, I got an offer to join them directly. And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to try the corporate world because it's much more than just giving solutions or solving one piece of the problem. It makes you really rounded. That's how it worked out in my case. I was fortunate enough to have the right people at the right time. The intervention was great. The guidance that I received was also very good. It really helps you shape the career if you have the right people. That's primary number one. A hundred percent. And how did you decide what problems to tackle first and in what order? 
I should probably give you a quote of on my personal approach is always your job requirement or job specification is only as good as the time it was written. It is true for all of my roles. It's true for all of the roles I hire as well, because today's organizations are very fluid and the markets are also fluid. You have customer related issues or opportunities cropping up. You have regulatory challenges cropping up. You have M&As. So if you look at it, your organizations, the company and the teams that you manage are all really fluid. God or those days when you got into a job and let's say you ended up doing the same thing for 10, 15 years. Yeah. So as a person going into any role, with my approach has been more of, yes, this is what the core requirement is, right? What's my initially you are told this is what you have to do two things I go by is you don't have to ask permission all the time it's something as people grow I don't know about your the audience who are involved at what level in their career they are usually but one of the important things is you don't have to sit around and ask for permission all the time have a clear idea of what you can do and what you cannot do and then do what's right for the team or for the company ultimately that will be right for you so in choosing the problems I always used to look at obviously if something is there's a burning issue and it's your responsibility, you can't go away from that, right? Besides that, I look for where the opportunities for expansion is, right? And where we have things that if we don't take care of it right now or in the immediate three to six months, it can be a problem for us. I'm not a big believer in five, 10-year plans. I make plans uh, six months to a year, year and a half. Even if in the currently, if you see the data world, a lot of CDOs, we had a runway of about two years or something earlier on. Now, if you ask me that the time frame has shrunk so much that people get you into a role and they are expecting results. And I'm sure we'll go we'll touch on those topics on CDO related activities later in the discussion. But my point is people don't have two years of time frame anymore. So you have to yes. really adjust your the way we approach problems. We have to be always on the lookout for new opportunities. Uh, establish the foundation in a very modular way so that whatever opportunities comes, you're able to kind of grasp on it and grow from there. That's the same for your team. That's the same for your career as well. Anything in that particular angle do you want me to add anything on it Oh, I think that is great and spot on. So could you uh, tell the audience a little bit more about the role of the CDO, main responsibilities, what would those be? This is just free flow, like me looking at it from, because I've been playing a similar role before the CDO and I was a CDO earlier and then now on the consulting side, supporting CDOs or data leaders, right? So when you look at that entire spectrum, you ask 10 people, you get 10 answers. And I think the biggest opportunity where we as an industry might have last is we focused too much on the activities and not on the outcome. The reason I'm saying it, the CDO's role, generally you ask somebody who's recently into the field or looking at it, the person has to come in, put the policy, take care of data quality, do the governance, set up the framework. That is all activities. In reality, a CDO Whatever he or she does, the effects of it, the output really is shown when your end users start using that. So you are more of an enabler in a data role. Unless you have PNL responsibility, you're not doing anything. Everything that you do within the company under your organization's activities is all to enable some other frontline manager, either in finance or operations or risk or all of those things. So the real assessment of whether whatever we did works or not is you need to go and ask your users. That's where it is. So given that everything we do is just activities. Nobody really cares. When we take an approach and say, oh, yes, we need to do this get data governance activity. We need to put a 
catalog in place. We are totally approaching it in the wrong way. What is it that that person is going to get? Once we get good at explaining that what's in it for me equation for every one of your stakeholders, we would have actually gotten better as the CDO function. I made those mistakes as well. And then I corrected after course of time. That's why I'm able to speak both sides of it. I think the influence also comes from we have a whole lot of theorists in this uh, field, right? People with theoretical knowledge, they read up on governance and policies and come up with 50 different questions and checklists and things, sometimes end up with a 150-page deck. And these are real situations. This is not theory, what I'm talking about. So when you have a 150-page deck, this is how you should roll out your CDO operations. Guess what happens? Nobody reads after the 10th page. And then there was a situation where we ended up with a spreadsheet with 36 different tabs. Do all these activities. Only then you will be 35, right? I'm saying yes, yes, because some other consulting companies started it. My thing has always been is I wouldn't go to a surgeon who has not practiced doing surgery during their college days and stuff and then does surgery on a real person. They say, I read the surgery book. Here are the recommendations. You're going to cut two inches below your navel. Eh? I'd say, okay, now go. So, but <laughs> unfortunately, we are taking in inputs on what the organization should be and what it shouldn't be, where we need to focus on from a whole lot of theoretical people. The flip side that the CDOs are really running into now, and it's, it's from a very defense-oriented approach where it's regulatory, it's risk mitigation, it's compliance-related activity, to now, it is more offensive in the sense, how do we get real benefits out of this? Earlier, yes. At one point, it was looked at as sunk cost. We have to do it. I think a lot of the stick approach was used with very little carrot approach in the use as well. So now people are looking at, okay, I don't have that much of regulatory issue. Market is booming. Customers are kind of coming in, seeking their products. Why should I even listen to you? I had another discussion with one of the former CFOs, and I don't blame him. The thing is, we have not created awareness on the business user's side. So for him, the angle that he's looking at it is, okay, you are a CDO, it's more governance, we got to do it, and then he goes into cybersecurity side. The value of what can happen if you use your data right, what can happen if you use put the right level of analytics in there, and if you're able to look across your business processes to enhance mistake-proofing in there, what can I do better, right? Then you're talking about real dollar saves, you're talking about changing your processes, you're talking about rolling digital apps and all of those things. So it's very interconnected these days. It's not just data and analytics. You've got to look at your business technology. You've got to look at your organizational design aspects. You also have to see how my process re-engineering needs to happen. Just because something is not broken doesn't mean that you don't have to touch it. There's a lot of technology in the market today which you can really leverage to improve your processes, cut waste, get your uh, time to market or customer experience activities going. So what it means for a CDO then, the person who's getting into that role is suddenly finding them a little bit of a kind of efficient out of what scenario. Because think about it. I have seen CDOs come in from a PMO office. They were remotely engaged with CCAR. They were managing the CCAR project from a PMO office. And that person, okay, you're the closest to what we know. You're the CDO now. In other cases, somebody is very good at what they do on the risk side or on the finance side, and they understand the business very well. And so they end up as CDOs. In other cases, you have people from the technology side who have a good grasp of the business and who are able to bridge that business and technology sites. So they end up being CDO. I came through that route. Initially, I was on the technology side, then moved into business technology risk side. So, but suddenly your needs are totally different. You were promoted or given that opportunity because you were doing well in your previous role, but 
that's not just the only qualifier the expectation that you will be able to do well in the current role is why what got you the job all of a sudden they are finding themselves in a position where they need to create business case convince a whole lot of people understand the technology that's constantly changing in this landscape data science big data rpa throw in everything and they also are expected to understand risk or finance or operations or any of those things so your options are it's very difficult to go and hire somebody with all of that skill sets the next option is you can groom somebody internally to cover the major bases that you need and then surround that ceo with the right level of skill sets and i'm a big proponent of uh, moving people across organizations i mean we, when we go into the talent portion of it i just wanted to touch on it because that's the only way to make this more successful because if if you're in a business role in a finance role it's enough if you know finance you need some amount of technology but predominantly your job is finance you're in a risk role predominantly it is risk you should know when to reach out to people for doing your risk modeling and the latest technologies and all those things but a cdo role all of a sudden you're expected to know a whole lot of about the business a lot about the technology a lot about people management a lot about handling the finances as well and investments that's where the challenge is for most cdos I completely agree that in terms of the everything that you said the trajectory of of CDOs that they come from you or traditionally they a lot of them have come from areas that is different to the type of work required by a CDO in the early days of the role as the role was evolving in our industry a lot of CDOs were focused on governance and on processes and that now we're moving to a place where there's more focus on the value and to right. deliver that business value you do need to understand business very well you need to be very well connected around your business to drive the change for mm-hmm. the results to be whatever's implemented to be actually used so mm-hmm. i completely completely agree with that with everything that you said i really like your approach of being very pragmatic in what will create value for the organization mm-hmm. instead of being stuck in the theory could you tell me more about how you do that so we we'll give you an example i grew up the core technology side right in the data side through the etl and early days data modeling architecture and then on to the business roles one of those discussions and i knew we weren't doing things right it was going slow much slower than i anticipated and a whole lot of things and then at one point i'm just being very explicit sharing my my flaws as well so one point i said this is no brainer it's we know this part of the business it's easy to model why are we delaying so much my technology counterpart said prakash we have challenges because the people don't understand the business side that much as some of your guys and that's why it's taking time to model these scenarios so my question was why if you are doing a design you can be a pure play technologist today you can be a pure play business user today that's gone those days are completely gone there is no job guarantee in being like that and forget about job guarantee there is no growth as well if all you know is i know data modeling well and this is how i do it or, or these days i know to do hadoop or big data my answer to that is nobody cares today it is one to hadoop tomorrow you they'll put something else with the tortoise and launch it with another name unless you learn what who you're supporting what is that business process where i can where am i adding value if we are looking at things as i'm loading 2 million records in and somebody is consuming another 100 million records that's anybody can do i can throw the job out some other country for 15 dollars today and get it done i think the real value is the way we'll be able to help the organization overall is where we have more people getting closer to that the area of intersection across that business and technology lines so when you do a technology work you know what the business things are there was one incident where somebody called me out why 
are you asking me so many questions? Just send the data to us, we'll figure it out. And my thing was, you have wow. to let me understand what you are doing so I can anticipate the problems you'll run into. And then when I give it, you'll be in a better shape. So it turned on, off on a very bad foot, um, mistrust. And But at the end of working with that person for oh, three to four months, like she was completely on board with the approach. She said, I now know why you ask so many questions because blah, blah, blah. We were able to put an end result in the rewrite of an entire decision engine. So it makes it easier for your business user and they have a lot more trust in what you're doing. That's the only way to find out problems because when you know more about the business processes and when you're actually validating on the other side based on the data that it's generating, now you're in a position to ask questions or even point out issues that they don't even know. Hey, have you thought about this scenario? You, you were going ahead and approving loads, which doesn't make sense from a business angle because if that person decides to not pay the loan, you will end up recouping the collateral, which doesn't go at that value that you have loaned it in the first place because he or she went ahead, changed the engine, added a whole lot of modifications, like it's 70% modified vehicle if it's an auto finance loan. What happens? How can you hypothetically, right? Let's say it's a $40,000 car or a Jeep and somebody adds 40 more grand in modifications. Everything works out fine. The valuation comes out, it's 80,000 with options, fully loaded, close it to 80,000, some lower level underwriter goes and immediately underwrites or it goes through an auto decision for the people with the AI mentality. Yes, yes, numbers will match. We go ahead and underwrite it. But the reasoning part of it is, can you really turn around if the person doesn't pay? Can you turn around and sell $80,000 Jeep Wrangler in the market today? How many people will buy it? You are now sitting with a higher value collateral, which the rest of the public don't value at that price. Your only option is take a hit on it and sell it at a lower loss. That's where the things come in. So as part of us doing it through the data side, we went ahead and made a credit policy change that such one-off cases should be escalated to at least two or three levels for uh, wow. the senior risk people to approve such scenarios. You don't right. want to blow up those customers. They Maybe they're really good. Maybe they will pay, but it is bad business practice. My reason for saying that is if we don't understand the business scenario, how it operates and put some comments and ask those questions, they will find out the hard way. You're not able to collect on the loan or you're taking a loss on the loan and things. And the problem is one, two loans will not be found when a thousand of them happen and then some number beeps on the screen and then that's when panic will set in. A lot of these things can be avoided by the people who are closer to the data, asking the right questions, trying to spend time understanding the business and see what it's doing. Numbers are numbers. You, you run the math, I run an equation, I use R, you use Python, it doesn't matter. It's what questions are we asking looking at those numbers. That's really the one which matters. Yeah, it definitely means that the data people can add a lot more value in the organization. Yep, that absolutely. is excellent. And tell me, what are your views on the adoption of whatever's implemented by the data teams? So there's definitely an element of, besides the, the technical implementation, there's usually a change management piece and mm -hmm. that is required on to get users, business people to adopt either new practices or new systems or things like that. What are your views on getting the maximum value from the analytical work by helping business users adopt the new either systems or products that the team creates, how do you go about getting that maximum value from the team's work? So the first thing is we need to go in with the understanding that any change is hard. Change generally is hard for us, hard for anybody else. How you embrace the change after that is what differentiates people. My career working with people on both sides, technology and the business, uh, senior level leaders, the first reaction to thing is, one, if it is too complex, they immediately shut off. And it is a general way humans work. So it cannot be too complex. If it is too complex, it's more of tell them what is in it for them without letting them 
know about a whole lot of what you have to do to make it happen. You can say that your manager to get the right appraisal and visibility and all of those things, but CFO or a risk leader does not, I wouldn't say they don't care. They will be lost if you start explaining about the 100 different things that you have to do to put a risk model in place. Instead, be realistic with what it's going to take. Don't overpromise. At the same time, it's always the two sides need to engage with in driving any kind of a change, right? And the communicator, in this case, us, who's going to them asking, okay, this, this is how I'm going to change. Let's say it's some kind of a portfolio reporting and we are sunsetting their legacy systems, putting new practices in place. They have to point to the new databases. And I've seen it in larger organizations, small, medium-sized organizations. When you ask them to move from a platform that they've been using for like 10 years to here is a new platform, it is completely souped up engine, this thing, the it'll, queries will run blazing fast on this and all of those things. Everything might look promising. For them, it is how much of pain it is going to cost for me. What can I do to make it easier or into a more smoother transition? So we cannot try and present something new, but make their life miserable in the process. And in change will cost some amount of that disruption. As far as we explain that this is not going to be permanent, it's a temporary thing. Here, are, I've thought this through, how it's going to impact your organization and your people. It's going to take three months. We may be able to run in parallel and I'll do what I can to support from my side for the parallel runs. At the end of three months, this is how we cut over, then it's becoming very easy. It will fail if you try to do all the work for them. Seen some of those situations as well. It, it didn't go well because even though you convert yeah. it, they're not going to move it. It will fail if you just expect to, okay, I'm cutting over here three months. You got three months to do. That's it. Whatever it is, right? At the end of three months, they will raise to the topmost level in the organization, get an exception and still continue to do what they're doing. So both approaches are useless. What will work is that you really work with the person. Each team or function has a different challenge. In some cases, when I went through this approach, some people said, okay, I can have this particular SME sit with you or kind of lead the initiative for me. You just have to work with this person. He or she will take care of everything inside my organization. Perfect. Sometimes you may not have that luxury. You will have to put your people to kind of work with their people and train them and kind of gradually move them. That's the second option. The third option is one senior finance leader came and told me that I like what you're doing. I want to help you, but I'm a four-member team running in the entire performance analytics for the line of the business. I don't have any bandwidth to support you. So I came back, talked to my team and said, what can we do? We actually identified a person from our side. I made that person shadow our SME we need from her group for about a month and a half, then took over wow. about 40 to 50% of that person's role. And the agreement was, okay, now that he shadowed for wow. a month and a half, he knows everything what you guy is doing, at least on the technology side, not on the finance side, because it was a pseudo finance tech MIS analytics organization. So for the next three months, he will be there supporting 50% of this other person's workload. Let your SME work with us. We made it happen. The same solution will not work everywhere. It, it just will not. You need to listen to your users or the sponsors, understand what their current problems is, but you've got to have your eye on one, how to make it happen. It may take two weeks in some cases. It may take three months in some cases. Just be creative. Just because you've done something before is not going to work. But what's really important is totally thinking out of the box. How can I make it happen? When you approach it collaboratively, things can work. That is fantastic. And how do you think would be good ways to get your teams on board with this approach? I find that a lot of people in the data space, we love to solve problems and we love to solve them quickly and efficiently. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that doesn't gel well with taking the customer or the user on a journey. Those are sort of opposing forces. So how do you get the teams to do both? 
I've had, had some people come in and ask during my corporate days as well. My answer to them was, if you want your job, you better make sure that they get on board. And that is a reality. You can say, I'm good at building models, I'll build models, and I don't care if the users come in and use it or not. And that comes from state, not to point fingers at the level of experience. Such a statement that I'm good at doing this and I really want to do this, I don't care about my users, will only come from somebody who does not have an understanding of how business case development, securing sponsorship inside an organization and support, signing up stakeholders who are going to come up and give you projects or work with you on creating new projects. There's a whole lot of things that you have to work across the board. Just creating a model or putting a dashboard is just one part of the equation. And going back to my previous statement, right? Whatever we do, if we are not able to get it out, from a usage standpoint or make any of the users actually use it in a productive way for them, all of the work that we do is just throw away. There's nothing, no accomplishment there if we just build something and it's not being used. It's true. In that case, all the all the effort is completely wasted. Touched on talent. So one, one other thing I would add is I'm a firm believer. Organize, you can create an organization to address the problem on hand, which is anywhere between 12 to 18 months, and you can make changes to the organization. And this is how I've typically operated. And the reason is your problems or new opportunities come up all the time. I may or may not need the same type of skill sets. So two things when I hire, I look for is you should have one or more of the areas that we need. If, if, if I'm running a CD organization or analytics firm, you have to know absolutely you have to be good at one or two things that we do. That's a must. It's great if you have if you know more. If not, it's fine. But what when we create the teams, and I don't think very many companies are doing it effectively because we tend to look for people with governance skills, people with quality skills. People with, we forget about, okay, do I have people with good networking skills? Who knows other people within the organization? Do I have people who have a lot more emotional EQ level than myself? And do I have people who can actually go ahead and sell what we are creating here? Because selling is not just putting up a board or putting it on the internet. You got to have conversations on the ground. Not everybody has the talent. Some people are more connected within the company. You may have that talent within your team or you may just be a part of other team. But what I'm saying is you got to go and actively recruit these people who can be the voice of what you're doing in other parts of the organization. The same way, you also have to go and seek out people who I call as champions, meaning these are the people who are well-respected in their individual functions. Maybe it's a risk function or a finance function or operations or servicing. It's easy to identify them. You are in a meeting, everybody starts talking, four or five people here and there, the discussions goes, and then one person starts making a comment and there's complete silence. And then they, they start, you will see the whole change of direction in the way the meeting flows. That's your champions. When you identify champions, they don't have to be like having a big team or they need to have a big title, none of those things. It is who has the most effective voice within that particular function. They're respected for the knowledge that they have. They're respected for the output that they have given. They're respected for uh, their command of the business and how they treat people, all of those things. And it's easy to identify them. So go find those champions, build a relationship one-on-one with them and see how they can help you and how you can help them. Because the only thing, if you're expecting your champions to support you in what you're doing, in driving change or selling a new idea within the organization, 
organization, you also have to give them the confidence that you're not going to mess up their name because some of them might have gotten to where they are after working 10 years within the organization. And if they are rallying behind your initiative and then you mess up, you don't deliver on time, you burn bridges, you don't do any of these things, that spoils their what they worked hard to build. They need to get the confidence that you can do what you're doing. So it's more like having a trusted relationship with somebody on the ground who will sell your ideas internally, get valid feedback, sell as in not just influencing, manipulating the use of it, but selling as in really, okay, what are the challenges for accepting this? What will we as a group have problem in implementing it? Or can we do something otherwise? All that feedback mechanism is extremely important for a data leader as they go through the process of defining their strategy. That is fantastic. Finding of the right sponsor and the right first person to start working with, it's so critical. Once you find that person and start to establish the relationship, how do you determine what to work on first, what you can help them initially? Do you have any thoughts or any ways that you do that? So, and then this depends on the sponsor as well, right? The answer to most of your questions is also there's a add a caveat in the sense it's, it depends on the person you're dealing with and the situation the company is in. I'll give you two scenarios. The easier one is sometimes we had this whole regulatory thing. So risk, the chief risk officer was automatically a sponsor. Whether they like it or not, you started doing some work on the governance side from CDS. But in reality, there may be a burning problem where the upside is so high. The visibility is high, the company is trying to change, and so that person becomes champion. He or she will tell you, this is where we are. I know this is where we need to get it addressed. That's an easier thing. When you don't have, let's say you're working with one champion, but you want to take your engagement with starting with somebody else. In those scenarios, I follow an approach, what I call it as LIRO, L-I-H-R-O, low investment, high return opportunity. And the reason is, whatever we do cannot be dragging for nine months a year. The kind of uh, patience is gone. People are not going to wait for a year to see that what you're doing is starting to give effects. And the second thing is, if you go up front with a $2 million quote, they are going to say, okay, it's too high risk for me. I'm not going to invest in it. They're going to back off. So it is really important that you speak and select some things that you can quickly do with little or minimal engagement from their people. And three, if you can automate things that impact them on a regular basis, monthly reports, talk to them. Hey, what's going on? We ran into an organization recently where across the chief risk officer and the chief compliance officer, Every month, there was a team of people who were doing the same things around validation, reconciliation, and ensuring that they were not violating some of the regulations. This work used to be there for about 15, 20 days in a month. So we said, okay, that's valuable resource. Those guys or girls, they know your business. They know your internal processes. It's we should try and find out how you can kind of use them for your internal needs and take out these things. So go through an initial analysis, identify what can be automated, what cannot. And sometimes the perfect solution will take over a year because so many other enterprise systems are changing. You're queued up other vendor-related things that you can do nothing about, right? Maybe there's a vendor is processing your data on their platform and stuff. So in that case, choose a tactical for three to six, five-month duration, how you can solve the problem now and get the buy-in for the strategic thing at the same time. And the reason I'm saying it is if you just sell the tactical solution, give it, and then release the product, you are never going to get the approval for the longer term. I shouldn't say never. Sometimes it can happen 
happen. But the appetite for funding your long-term strategic right way of doing things is very low. So what I typically do is I roll it up together and say, okay, we'll do that the right way as part of the larger project. And here are all the 10, 15 things that will happen under that. Here is the tactical stuff I'm doing it for you. Three, four things will take care of your immediate problems. So the timing is low, two to three months, very low investment for them. But the upside is really, really high. That's the way to start getting. Once they start working with you, you then see that you're able to deliver. They don't need a better support. One last thing I'll, Philippe, I'll make a comment on this again. And going back yes. to my earlier statement, CDOs have to know the business. doesn't matter which part of the area you come from. By that, I'm not saying like if you're in some industries are more involved than the other. Like I can never go into like a healthcare drug research type of a setup because it's too involved. Maybe the learning curve is too long. But loan systems or uh, the manufacturing side or the supply chain, these are really easy. If you've gone into Amazon and bought a product, you know half of retail. So that is a good starting point. So try and learn how your company operates. Look at what where the problems are. Look at where what they think. They think. Because you will gain more respect when you're talking to your CFO or the chief supply chain officer or the marketing officer. When they realize that, yes, you have taken the effort to understand the business at a much faster rate, the acceptance of you as a person, as an individual, as a leader goes up. There's just no exception. Even this is not just CDOs on the business side, right? It is even if you're being a data leader, taking up a technology role, you cannot say, I came into the role because of my Hadoop knowledge. Nobody cares. As I said, your stakeholders, your sponsors, the people you're going to be talking in the executive rings are all business people. They don't care if you run it on Hadoop or you're going into Microsoft uh, Azure or you're running on AWS type of a setup. Nothing. For them, it is, is it working? Hitting my timeline needs. Is it nimble enough that I can make changes? Those are all the things. More often, it is the technology people and the people in CDO roles who have to learn most of the business to get, get that buy-in. So true. I know that you work with a lot of CDOs to help them in their roles. Are they surprised that most of the work is around the people side relationships and then learning the business instead of uh, focus on the technical side? It depends on the CDO's background and the career path. That's what I've seen. Because in one scenario, what happened was this person was came from a finance background, great star player. And when they started, and it was more of, okay, what's the budget? How much we are going to? And obviously, we all play to our strengths, right? So somebody coming from finance, they know the dollar side, they know what ROI I'm going to get and all of those things. But the idea of Putting in an organization, the right type of organization, establishing good relationships with the technology side, you should know enough to be dangerous to ask the right questions. You should know, is that going to be useful or not? That's key. I have not come across a whole lot of people who can bridge all of those areas. I've been lucky enough to work with a few people who, no matter what, whether this person's background was finance, he got into marketing as a chief marketing officer, then he was handling uh, risk-related areas and transformation, some amount of data. Then now is in a current CFO, interim CFO role. Amazing, brilliant, brilliant gentleman. Ability to just understand new things, ask the right questions and connecting the dots is the primary thing you need for anybody in a CDO role. So I, I was recently suggesting to him, hey, if you're trying to look for your jump, look at CDO options because you know enough, probably more than a lot of people are coming with your background and your curiosity and enthusiasm and you build teams and manage large attractions. So I'm actually trying to push him out from financing to CDO role. So yes, it, it totally depends on the person's background, right? I had a president of the unit who's now heading a cut services unit at a different company. He was total out and out data and analytics guy. And this is, I'm talking about the days when the CDO term itself was in 
coined. He would have all of us, head of marketing, head of risk, head of finance, operations. Along with that, we will go make the trip from the data analytics side. And through his leadership meeting, he will be challenging the numbers right there and asking validations and throwing real dashboards in there. It worked very well because now, before we went to the meeting one week before, the heads of these different functions would start calling us. They would say, hey, I'm looking at this uh, risk dashboard here. I'm seeing the portfolio going down. This is what my assumption is. What are you guys seeing on the data side? Because they didn't want to go into the meeting with the president and say, hey, we didn't validate it before the monthly meeting with the uh, data analytics teams. That should be the level of yeah. interaction. And it can only happen when the top person in the company is actually driving it. When you start managing with data and analytics, the whole game changes. Unfortunately, not a whole lot of people do that. It may be because they don't have the time or maybe because they're uncomfortable trying to probe a little more deeper than they have to in the data and analytics side. I don't know the reasons, but it's a true game changer when the top guy really takes time to involve your data analytics as part of the core business driver. Really like your focus on developing the relationships to essentially educate stakeholders to become more data driven. And tell me as when people start on their on their roles as leaders in this space, how do you recommend they go about building their teams to create the amount of skills that you are mentioning? I am going to take uh, a step back. We'll come to the team in like two minutes. So when was the last time you went to a data seminar and uh, what is the audience like? So if it was a, a CDO conference I went to in the last yeah. month, all CDOs, so all yeah. people doing only that line of work, but not any other business areas. So do you see a problem with that? 100%. <laughs> I may turn out to be the most hated speaker out of the series if I make this statement. <laughs> oh, this but, is great. But, but I'm still making it. We're being too busy fighting our backs. You may need something, obviously, when you do a good job. You have to celebrate. That's definitely true. But we come together to discuss problems. This is not working. It's so hard to get business buy-in. It's hard to drive change. We are doing analytics. It's not used. All of these questions that you're asking can be fixed if only we start answering the what's in it for me question much more frequently to the business users. We go yes. them. Whenever we engage with them, they're so scared to the point that because people say, oh, here is your access to a data governance tool. Go ahead and validate the definitions and put the calculations in there. They freak out and run the other side. That's the problem right. all of them are, most cases, they are very busy already. In other cases, they are doing like the second job. That also will not work. If you try and make somebody is doing risk modeling, somebody is doing portfolio analytics or regulated reporting outside, and you ask them, okay, by the way, from now on, 25%, you are also going to own this thing. One, it's a failed aspect to start with. That's the reason why you don't get a whole lot of traction because we are overloading people on the business side and you're expecting more of them to understand the complex stuff that people are doing on the technology side. I always believe it's easier for people to learn from this side about the business. You ask, I mean, when, when you go out for coffee, when you meet with them, or just set up two hours on your calendar. I made mandatory for some of my team members where, okay, Fridays, you got to have two or three hours with some business person. I don't care even if you are doing their work. Try to understand what they are doing because if you don't do that, you we are never going to succeed. And if you learn what they're doing a lot more about what they do, you're going to be productive and they are going, it's going to be a very easy 
easier conversation for both sides to talk because they know they're talking with somebody who understands their subject matter and their problems. So yes, the conferences, that's main starting point of failure because it is all data people talking about governance, how many seven things that can fail, what are the five things that you should remember, what are the three things that you do, it's a magic pill, it'll solve all your issues. And 75% of that is coming from people who have never done it in their own things. We definitely have to get more business people into those conferences. And even if you don't get conference, start spending more time talking to the business folks. Try understanding. You don't have to spend a whole lot of time. Talk to them for an hour. Come back. Do try to take their uh, process flows. Understand how, I'm just giving financial services. Understand how a loan is processed. What happens? What are the different stages? You would be surprised if you go into a data team and ask, okay, what are the st stages in the servicing operations? What happens when a person doesn't pay? I can pretty much tell you like 60 to 70 percent may not even know. Therein lies our problem. We got to start making it mandatory for people on the technology. I mean, applications is slightly different. A nice agile thing comes in, a wireframe or whatever you are used to consuming in your thing or business requirements, put a button here. And when I click that button, it should add these three fields and put it in there. It's very easy. It's fixed. It doesn't change very often. Even if you're operating in the agile fashion, you're not going to change the same screens or same buttons every year. Data is totally different. If you don't understand what is causing that particular data point, we are not going to be adding value to anybody. Coming back to the talent stand standpoint, talent is we should be comfortable hiring people who are better than us in specific areas. That's a given because, as I said, yeah. the CDO role is only getting complicated. It's not getting simpler anymore because expectations are high. And not only that, the day you go into that CDO role, all of the problems that your peer or predecessor has caused is all your problems. Recently, I actually was surprised to see somebody writing an article on blame period. It seems how long that issue has been there. How how long your previous predecessor has been there, how recent you went into that role, calculating all that article actually had a complex calculation to come up with what's my blame period and then say, okay, you can use the blame game for about a month and a half. If you ask me, that's a non-starter. Whether you like it or not, on day zero, it is yours. No matter if your previous predecessor cost it or somebody else cost it or it happened in another department and now it is yours. When you so, accept it on day zero, you gain two things. One is you have zero wiggle, wiggle room around blaming what the other person did the first thing you will stop worrying two you will quickly get to what can i do from now instead of trying to say which parts of this now can i put it in the previous era versus what can i own up now so once you approach that day one it's all my responsibility all assets now what's needed is taking a quick look at what i inherited the reason i'm saying is data is even though the role may be new in some organizations it has never been created and you're going in as a first person or they may not call you as a cdo they may call you head of data or whatever it is data has always been around. Somewhere it has been happening. I think as a leader, our main responsibility is what's the state of data? What's the state of data? What's the state of analytics? What's the state of my users? These are the three bucket, major buckets. So when you start looking at data, you look at obviously the repositories that you had, the feeding systems and all of those things, the technology components, right? And what business functions do I have support coverage? Which ones I don't have covered? When you look at the analytics side, you're now going to look at all the nice stuff around where it is being used, how it is being used, where data is getting out. Can somebody run a query extract 100,000 records and put it on the spreadsheet? If so, why? Because 100,000 is not a report. So you can start looking at the usage patterns. And then lastly, your users, because if they don't use the very function of your organization is mute. So if there are resistance and in some cases you should anticipate resistance because people resist. Either they don't understand the change or they think it's too complicated or they don't have want to learn something new or change or it's just general human ego, right? I've been in a 
position for five, seven, nine, ten years, and you're coming in now, and maybe there's a better way, but you're asking me to change my ways. There is going to be a pushback. Those last category of people are definitely not going to be your biggest well-wishers. So stop wasting time and trying to start convincing about. Go around the organization, find out who your biggest supporters are going to be and where you can gain support. So when it comes to talent building, and I don't, some people, actually, this happened to me when I started introducing this concept, my peer in, in my new role, I, this person was the technology head at that time. His immediate reaction was, so you're basically trying to coach my people. I said, why are you looking at it as coaching? It's the same organization. It's one company. Whether that person does that work being in your organization or my organization doesn't matter. The way we anyways have to work together because I'm now the business side and you are the technology side. Without you, I cannot survive and without me, you cannot survive in the kind of two situation. What we are doing is giving an opportunity for people to grow, to learn and experience other people, other areas in the business, learn new stuff that they don't know and move. Some people actively do it, which is a very, very small percentage of people who actively move around the organization, learn different things. Some people just don't want to be disturbed. Stable job. I'll come in at nine, go out at five. Don't bother me. I have other things that I'm devoting my time. That's fine. As far as they do the nine to five well. It is that middle area where they want to move around. They would be given an opportunity. They will like to learn more things and all of those things, but they don't know how to do it. And that's where as a data leader, it's very important that we create opportunities for those people who kind of take it up when you say, hey, your skill sets are vital from for what I'm doing. By the way, when you come into this group, you can also learn X, Y, Z, these different things. Would you be interested? Have those conversations. Reach out to the people. A lot of problem with the whole, I wouldn't say it's a position problem. It is, again, a personality thing, right? If you go in with a C in the title, people think I am going to be at this level. I'll only talk to the other Cs in the organization and that's it, or maybe one level on the technology side. But that's really not true. For you to be successful, you a CEO need to be very comfortable going up and down the chain. The reason being, their biggest talent may be three levels below. And if you don't talk to people in the other areas, you're going to miss out. It happened in my case. We went in and one of my uh, the directors just abruptly decided to quit after uh, three weeks on the after I joined. I made it a point right from day one to start talking to different people within the organization. But guess what? When this person, the director quit, it was a no-brainer for me. I talked to this other person who was analyst three within the organization, said, okay, I like everything you bring to the table. You have these skill sets. There are some areas, obviously, that are missing. I'm going to work with you over the next three months. And depending on how it goes, we'll see. Three months, she was able to kind of do everything I threw at her, stood up to the challenges, improved her skill sets. We ended up promoting her two levels above where she was. Wow. It's not just a loss for the CDO. It's when people don't do this kind of a thing, reach out to leaders, new leaders coming into the organization and see where the opportunities are. They are missing out on their careers. Because I think one of your other questions was how people can develop their careers, right? That's right. Right. So if we cannot let other people drive our careers, I mean, that's for the person, for the intern, for the person joining the company new, everything. One of the best advice I've received is during my earlier roles is uh, I reached out to, he was MD of a major unit of operations uh, in the bank. He had about 4,000 people reporting to him. So kind of went and asked him, hey, I think I might have, I know I want a change in what I'm doing, but I don't know how to go about it, right? And he gave me a very simple formula. He, he told me, and he said, his mentor had given it to him. He said, have a three-year rule. First year, learn as much as you can about the job. And second year, do as well as you can on that job, the best that you can do. Third years, start looking for the next role. And 
I said, hey, I got the first one and two. And whenever I need a new role, I, I try to ask around and stuff. Sometimes it's not in a planned way. The second year, what you're saying, I anyways do it. The third one, I never approached it that way. They said that therein lies the problem. But so I asked, hey, John, can, do we really need to, an entire year? Believe me or not, it took me 11 months and two weeks on the third year to do that, to find wow. the next game. And the reason is, it's very different approach from job hopping, right? In job hopping, you just move meaningless jumps because I don't like my manager because I don't like my salary or I think here they are giving more an extra week of vacation or whatever be the reason, right? Or I just want something else to do because I think that's more nicer and sounds nice on my resume. That is akin to job hopping. What I'm talking about is if you go about in a planned way around your career, you can definitely grow. That's how I think most of the people have done it. That's how at least I was able to move up my uh, roles. But it needs you to do the first thing, which is learn as much as you can on that particular job. And the second thing, do your second year as best as you can. If you don't do one and two, there's no point in trying three because you won't have enough supporters in the company or anywhere else. So true. Great approach. And tell me, why did you decide to start your own company? So you obviously, the fact that I'm going too much into talent development and CEO areas is, I like challenges. And even during my long career, at I spent about eight, around eight years at JP Morgan and then three years at Santander. So I've always been able to move within the organization, which means new problems, newer set of people. I had, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to kind of grow up an entire function from the ground up, like, like zero. I was employee number one for that thing, hire, build the entire team identify the platforms set the program up and uh, running right but once my work is done i start looking at what's next so and that's how it has been all through the last 12 to 15 years so they started looking at it okay what can we do different because going back to one of my real situations where we were migrating two large platforms tens of thousands of uh, users hundreds of terabytes of data over there and we were going into a new platform so my challenge was how do i start moving my key technology leaders into the new pl- to focus on the new platform but how do I run the existing one? Right? So I asked around, so we had a few vendors at the time, and then they all came back with, hey, yes, we have a great candidate who would be a perfect fit and things, and all I ended up getting was like Informatica resumes with 20 years of experience. Right? I went back to said, guys, you understand, I want somebody who has been there, done that. Otherwise, it'll, I cannot keep the lights on. I also need somebody who has been there, done that type of, with that, their own experience to help me plan out the future state. I couldn't find people on both sides because on one side, it was more of the just build. You, if you ask, say, I need 50 developers, they may be able to land in a few months. That's not the skill set I wanted. They are on the other side, we ended up getting people who gave great presentations, beautiful decks, like 15 tabs of uh, spreadsheets from the top level consulting firms. I'm not saying yes. it was bad. The thing is, we need both those type of roles to run the program uh, for keeping lights on. If I'm doing a maintenance mode activity or if I'm doing a development activity, which will last for three years, that's fine. I go to a different set of providers. If I want, okay, what's the problem here? Come in or my key project person is left, a seasoned person, senior level person who can work well across different areas in the organization, put it neatly, capture the ideas, present it in uh, decks, good enough that I can take it to my board. I go to a different set of consulting firms. But that being there, done that component wasn't there at all. So about five years ago, we were starting, 
to my team, I said, man, the way things are, it's as if four, five, ten times we have done this. Why not just go out and as a whole group? So it started as a lighter conversation on the side. Then two years back, I decided, okay, this is where my core strengths are. I'm very good at uncertainties. I'm very good at around areas of challenge. I'm very good at grooming talent and putting teams and starting something when nothing exists or bringing order to a chaotic situation or whatever. So why not pursue that instead of trying to change my role every two, two and a half years? Why not just go on the consulting mode and try to offer a different offering in the market? That's where here I am and uh, that's the background. It's great. <laughs> really, really excellent. And I can see all your, both your knowledge, or well, I should say your knowledge, your experience and your passion coming through in the advice and in the learnings that you can provide to people. That's really, really great. So we'll change tact a little bit and I'll ask you a couple of audience questions. Mm-hmm. And the first one is, what do you think makes a great leader in the data space? Today, if you ask me, it's the first thing is understanding and acceptance that you won't know everything. And second, how to put a team together. When you come to an understanding that you don't know everything, you become humble and you're able to work well with people, ask the right questions. That's one. The second thing is you got to be creative, identify talent. So far, and I can proudly say this, I've made two mistakes hiring in my entire career. One, when I said, I don't want that person, my manager told me that, no, 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 I think you're making a mistake. He'll be a great fit. So reluctantly, I went ahead and hired, and that person turned out to be really great. In the second case, I just did not do enough due diligence because that person was interviewed before I went into my new role. And because my manager had previously interviewed, I just let it pass, and it turned out to be not so good. So as a CDO, it's very important that we try and understand what type of talent is needed and how to spot good talent. And not always the talent will be there waiting for you. You got to spend time growing that person, invest in the person, give them challenges and be there to support the person. It's very, very important. If your team knows that you're there for them, they'll go to any extent to support you in your initiatives. As simple as that. Deliberately stayed away from technology because that changes every six months. If you are the best Tableau guy, if you're the best uh, Hadoop guy or the best Python or R guy, it doesn't matter. In fact, you shouldn't be. I totally agree. Prakash, this has been outstanding. I really can't thank you enough for sharing your knowledge and experience and wisdom in this in this space. I only have one last question for you, and that yeah. is, what is a takeaway that you would like to leave the audience with? Something for them to consider in their career or to think about as they go through the different levels? Everything that I mentioned earlier, right, because uh, especially in the data science field, Python classes, I mean, kids are learning to code earlier. It's great, right, that we're touching to starting coding and all these things but much earlier than it used to be five, ten years ago. Undergrads, you learn a few things, right? But fundamentally, they need to remember it is not their expertise in R, Python, or any of the advanced AI machine learning that is going to make a difference for their lives. It will, to some extent, help them get the initial jobs let's say about five, six years into their career. They're comfortable doing that. That's fine. I know a whole bunch of good friends of mine who wanted to do coding and they've been doing 20, 25 years. But if they want to grow up through the things with more responsibilities, larger teams, higher impactful things, they have to absolutely, absolutely without fail, try and spend most of their time in learning the business and try and understand what the data is telling. Put a business context on it. Put a people context on it. Put a common sense context. Started. Does it make sense in the real world? I gave you the Jeep example. Does it make sense giving a loan, $80,000 loan on a Jeep? Yeah. Once 
once you do that, you are now better analyst. You will be able to look at your own visualizations and ask those questions that you're depending the business user to give you. Guess what? The business user may or may not know. And even if they know what questions to ask, they don't know what is feasible on the technology side. So being data scientists, the people on this side actually have an advantage over everybody else in the organization because they're hands-on. They understand the data. They know what data is where. They can run the analytics on it. Now, when they know the business side of it, they can even ask the questions or even go back and validate the questions. Hey, this is what I'm thinking. Does it make sense? The third one is definitely get comfortable getting in roles that you're not comfortable because everything, if, if you are trying to be more uh, sticking on to a, your comfort zone, there is no growth in it. You've got to be get, willing to get uncomfortable quite often. Okay. Follow the three-year role. Just move. Try different things. See what you like. Don't jump too early because you have figured out in three months that you don't like something. I know a few people who, who did that as well that I'm mentoring. So I used to tell them, hey, you gave up so soon. There's a lot of opportunity. Within three months, there's no way you're going to know it's good or bad. Try it out. It's been amazing. Really, truly amazing. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. Datasource Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. Datasource is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest calibre of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information. Exciting news, listeners. University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning, and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.